if you do the ministry training course that the Sussex Gospel Partnership operate in uh, Haywards Heath, you will learn that you should always have in your mind, in your sermon, a theme sentence. This is advice I very rarely take. Uh, a nice snappy theme sentence. This is the best I could do. Down, right. As God's purposes move forward in the coming Jesus kingdom, grace sounds a jarring note with the unspiritual supporters of the old covenant. It's really not a snappy sentence at all, is it? But it does describe what's happening here uh, because the purposes of God are moving forward. So we're moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. And we're moving from the things which you'd focus on Moses to the things in which you'd focus on Jesus. And it's a change. And actually, it's not a comfortable change in many ways. And as we've just read, over two issues regarding what I think unspiritual people would have made of the Old Covenant, we end up with a real controversy concerning uh, the uh, supporters of the Old Covenant as they would see it, the, the uh, Pharisees and the scribes, and Jesus. And it really is a jarring note because they criticize him for eating with tax collectors and sinners, and then as it, uh, as it goes on, uh, in his attitude to the Sabbath, they end up saying, well, this, his attitude to the Sabbath is so detrimental and disrespectful that he deserves to be killed. And did you notice that? Because Jesus in the synagogue says, what are we talking about here on the Sabbath, saving life or, or killing? And because they, they don't go with him on this saving life and enhancing life, instead they say, well, we're going to kill you. Now, that, we're not going to get as far as that bit. We're just going to look at the, um, the uh, tax collectors and sinners, but it does all follow on. So let's do what we can in a, in a hopefully a fairly simple way to look at the bit we, that is about feasting and fasting. That seems to be what it's about, feasting and fasting. So, verse 13, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. So let's uh, sort out the tax collector's booth. I think it would be something like that. So here are the fishermen bringing in their fish, and as they land the fish, they have to... This is... Uh, I'm, I'm speculating on this, but I, I think this is the sort of idea, that they would have to pay tax to the tax at the tax collection point where there are a number of people, perhaps some soldiers, perhaps some uh, rather uh, beefy-looking um, assistants. And it's all done under the supervision of the Roman insignia because it's all going to go to Rome. So you, you get the point. I, I mean, in some ways, this could be a perfectly legitimate thing, like collect, collecting VAT. But you can see how easily this could be abused. So the fisherman brings in his fish, and they say, today, sorry, it's not a 10% tax, it's 15% tax. So why? It was 10% yesterday. Well, today it's 15%. Do you want to argue about it? 
and you can see how resentful people could get and uh, to know that the tax goes to Rome anyway uh, a tax collector was not a popular person so they're going past the tax collection point and incidentally I don't think there'll be just one person there I think there'll be a number of people there you begin to get the picture sort of the tax collection office on site I can almost visualize this when I was in Manar in, in Sri Lanka and there were military personnel patrolling the beach because they didn't want um, they didn't want what did they not want people escaping to India or military stuff coming in from India over the water I quite imagine having the beach becomes militarized and a sort of rather hostile place anyway there we are the tax collection point and it says as he walked along he saw Levi son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax collectors collection point and Jesus says to him follow me and Levi got up and followed him so uh, this is I believe the third time that Jesus has said follow me and people have got up and followed him there was the um, the fisherman in chapter 1 Simon and his brother Andrew come follow me and then James um, James and John were uh, the sons of Zebedee and he called them I don't think uh, we find him calling anybody as we go on in the gospel I think the, these three examples are the examples of Jesus to, saying to somebody follow me uh, so there's uh, Levi he, he might well be Matthew of, of Matthew's gospel and his mates or his associates saying what on earth are you doing uh, he leaves the money he leaves his business he leaves what he's been doing and follows Jesus and this leads to the confrontation in verse 15 while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples for there were many who followed him and here's the the scene with uh, the tax collectors and sinners sitting at the table feasting and Jesus there and his disciples and when the teachers of the law, verse 16, when the teachers of the law who are Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's a very disgraceful and wrong thing for Jesus to be doing. Why? Why is he doing it? Why is he in this place so entering the home of somebody who was such a disgrace to Judaism such a disgrace to decent society why does he enter this place it's defiling it's unclean and why is he sitting with these people who are you know the, well they're unclean, probably ritually unclean in the sense that they, they, they probably weren't observant in the sense, certainly not in the way the Pharisees were, so they wouldn't perhaps have been careful to avoid unclean things ritually, but even more, uh, more so, or certainly as well as morally, they're morally unclean, they're morally dubious people 
people whose who've made their money in dubious ways, people whose lifestyle is dodgy, people who you think, I certainly wouldn't want my son or daughter doing that. That sort of person. And here's the question, why is your... Uh, he asks, uh, they ask the... They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's the question, and I couldn't, and this, I think, is the way the answer goes. Jesus says, it is the nature of the case that if you're a doctor, you must get close to unhealthy people, because you can't be a doctor otherwise. And the idea, this is a process of healing. So if you have a doctor, they need to be with the unhealthy people in order to produce the healing. And Jesus says, you know, that's a, that's a likeness to what Jesus has come to do. He's a saviour. And in, a na in the nature of a saviour's work, he must get close to and get involved with sinners for the purpose of forgiveness and new life. And he says, that's what I'm about, that's what I'm doing. That's the nature of this part of God's purposes. And that's why I called it, I've taken this word grace. It isn't mentioned here, as I say, but I think that's a, a good description. It is God reaching out to people to bless people who don't deserve it. Uh, and perhaps even people who haven't asked for it and people perhaps who uh, until this moment weren't interested in it it's grace it's a ministry of grace so, you know, an activity of getting alongside these sinners winning these sinners bringing them to forgiveness and new life and we could say although I, when I looked it up I found I couldn't find this exact phrase the day of grace you know, the, the, the period of time in which God's activity could be put under this single word, grace. What's going on as Jesus walks alongside the lake? It's grace. And what's God doing since that time up to the time of Jesus' return? It's grace. Uh, Paul said it regarding himself. He says this is a, uh, a saying worthy of full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am number one that's when it says the worst it says it's the first uh, this is what Jesus Christ came to do and for you and I we think this is marvellous I think we do don't we we think it's marvellous the Pharisees do you see they, they find this a very jarring note they find it uncomfortable to the point of being unacceptable. It, I, I suppose we have to get our heads around the fact that what to us is wonderful, if you start off on the different foot that you think you're very righteous and you don't need to be saved from your sin, you think, well, this is very demeaning, it's very patronising, it's, it's unacceptable. And it was, I mean, that's what they're saying. Why does he do this? 
what's all this about? This isn't religion. This isn't what it says in the Bible. And of course Jesus is saying, that's what I have come to do. I've come as a saviour. And if you just had sort of an ounce of real spiritual sense, you'd be saying, give me, give me, give me, give me. So let's just reflect on this, because we live in the same day of grace. So I, I put in a, a comment here that for Christians, I think it's important that we are consistent with this. We're not meant to live in a Christian bubble where we only ever meet Christians, where our social life is only meeting Christians, where our time is only meeting Christians, and that's all we do. Because that's not how Jesus did it. He was interested in meeting, getting alongside, speaking to winning sinners. Please don't misunderstand. It's not saying that Jesus is condoning their sin. Jesus isn't saying, teach me, about, teach me how to sin. Absolutely not. But the nature of his gracious holiness is to get alongside sinners, to win them to his salvation. And he's getting involved with and getting alongside sinners without joining in their sin. And I put in a little challenge about whether we emulate the Lord Jesus. So Chris has been bringing this very helpful set of little video snippets about having a front line meaning where the armed forces of the kingdom um, meet up with the world outside and there's the sort of front line of interaction where we hope the kingdom will progress and win souls uh, so I do I just, just point out it Jesus had a front line in the sense that there, there was an interaction between him and people who were not yet his. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. I know it's a very obvious point to make, isn't it? Um, but sometimes it's worth stating the obvious. You know, we, we might ask ourselves, when was the last time that we ever had a meal with uh, tax collectors and sinners? Um, when was the last time that we had in our homes for a meal or a cup of coffee somebody whom we would love to win for the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, I'd offer that as a thought. And then I could be even more challenging and saying, as a church, would we say that we were a frontline church? Would we say that much of our, or a significant amount of our activity and interaction and prayer and concern is not just um, blessing the believers, but reaching out winsomely to the world outside? Um, I, think, I think we could say a yes to that. Are we a frontline church? But it's a good question to keep asking. Uh, and to, to keep on saying, well, where, could we expand this front line? Could we be, put perhaps more, more resources in it? Are we, etc. So let's, let's move on. The Saviour who was like a doctor who 
made it his business to be with the, the sick. Let's move to the next point of confrontation. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and, and the Pharisees were fasting. So we're talking about fasting here. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So here's a little picture of this. So we've got the disciples of John, and they're fasting. Now if they take a notice of Jesus' instructions about fasting, we wouldn't be able to tell that they were fasting, because they would just look perfectly normal. Do you remember that bit? You know, don't, Jesus says, when you fast, don't make yourself look all miserable, don't go around with a big sign saying, look at me fasting, just carry on life as normal. However, I have made it to look a little bit as though they're fasting, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast. So I don't know whether they look as though they're fasting or not. But uh, the visitors say to Jesus, well, what about your disciples? Because there they are, loads of food, uh, uh, scoffing it down, and they're not in the slightest bit troubled by it. They seem to be enjoying it, actually. And the visitors say to Jesus, some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now it's interesting that in all the Gospels, apart from John's Gospel, this sequence of questions and answers comes up. And I think there's actually quite a lot going on here. I'm not convinced that I've got my head around all of it, actually. But let's, let's see what we can do. Let's think a little bit about fasting in the Old Testament. So the Old Covenant Scriptures. Now fasting, the way fasting is um, described to us is, uh, first of all, to do with being sad. So in bereavement, people would fast. Do you remember when David heard the news of Saul's death? He tore his clothes and fasted. It's a sign of being sad. Uh, it's a sign, and from that, it can be a sign of being sorry. So being sad about sins, and from that, it can be a sign of being serious. So that's the sort of area we're in with fasting. It's not to do with losing weight. It's not to do with making time for other things. It's to do with being, it's, it, it, to express, in that culture, it was the way they expressed sadness and sorrow and seriousness. And to the best of my homework, I found that these were the fasts that were commanded in the Old Testament. So the Day of Atonement, once a year. In the time of exile, another four fasts were added to the calendar. And from the, uh, from the time of exile, I think this is the Feast of Purim, so from time in Babylon, in Esther, we have this one other fast enjoined. And if I may say, David, Eileen was with us when we did Esther 
many years ago and I still remember being encouraged by her response because as she went through it she was herself and said wow that's good and, and uh, amen to that and we as, together as a, as, a, as a group we enjoyed going through the book of Esther some years ago now but I still remember it now if you care to do the arithmetic I think that's six fasts per year so the old, old covenant did have those six fasts built into it. Now if we're to believe the Pharisee whom Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 18 verse 12, do you remember that he looks down on the tax collector next to him, I thank you God that I am not as other men are. Do you remember how many times he says he fasts? Twice a week. Now whether that's really what they would have said or whether Jesus is sort of, as he sometimes did exaggerating to make a point but let's take it literally so if they fast twice a week how many fasts is that per year that's what I made it to 104 if you think about it, it there's quite there's something going on there the old covenant actually commanded such and such but in the hands of the Pharisees they've extrapolated, they've taken it off in a certain direction, they've extended in a certain direction what the Old Testament said and there, oh dear I can't do the arithmetic, how many times bigger is 104 than 6? A lot bigger. They've, they've, they've multiplied hugely. The, the, the Old Covenant did say something about being sad and sorry and serious but it said six times a year, once every other month. But the Pharisees have taken this and said, well, this is the way God wants us to go uh, 104 times a year, twice, twice a week. So something's happening there. And, of course, it's something that Jesus' disciples aren't doing at all. How come? How come? How come they differ with us as to what real spirituality is? You know, if they're going to be hyper-spiritual, we're going to be hyper-spiritual, they seem to have a very different way of doing it. So it's interesting to look at Jesus' answer. And as I say, I think there's, quite, there's more going on here than meets the eye, and probably more than I've got hold of. Verse 19. So Jesus answers this in these terms, first of all. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. So they will be sad and sorry and serious. A day is coming when that will be the order of the day. But at this particular moment what we have is this. We have the bridegroom. Uh, we have the bridegroom and presumably you don't have a bridegroom without a bride and we have the friends of the bridegroom that's sort of a little parable and who are the people? well presumably the bridegroom must be Jesus he's come and he's the one who makes this state of affairs and so Jesus is the bridegroom and presumably the disciples then are the friends of the bridegroom or the guests of the bridegroom because they're the ones who aren't fasting which is an interesting question is who's the bride? the sinners well, yes yes I'd put a question mark because it, it, it's interesting blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb book of Revelation 
Best of those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So we would say, yeah, that's us. We're invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then we say, who's the bride? Well, that's us as well, isn't it? Yes, the church is the bride. So, and I'm just wondering whether we're actually there twice. Do you see what I mean? We're we're a bit like the friends of the bridegroom, and we're also the bride. Um, It's sort of... Well, at least we can be confident of this. Jesus is saying, don't think of the time that I'm here as being a time of lament and, oh, if only, and haven't we made a mess of things? That's not what I want you to be thinking about, says Jesus. That's not the, 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 the tone I, that, that comes when I come. Uh, he says, I want you to think of it as being like a wedding. That's why they're, they're um, tucking in, because that's what you do at a wedding, isn't it? And everybody can understand a wedding. It's a very cross-cultural thing. I remember I was, uh, preaching in Sri Lanka about the wedding supper of the Lamb, and of course it translates instantly, doesn't it? Because every culture has got uh, their eye on who might marry who, and every culture is delighted when, uh, when he proposes to her, and every culture thinks it's a wonderful day, and doesn't she look beautiful, and all of these things, which is, which is what weddings are about. And he says, this is, this is how you're to think of me coming. Uh, it brings a note of love, and of enrichment and of fulfillment and of leaving and cleaving you know sometimes tears are shed on a wedding day aren't they because something has passed away and something has become new and and, uh, there's something of that in, in what Jesus says there's a note of joy and there's hope for the future and all those wonderful things are before us at a wedding and Jesus says that's what it's like at this point in Mark's gospel because I've come it's a brilliant thought isn't it Jesus says that's that's what I bring that's how it is now I'm here and I I do wonder whether he, it's not just a passing answer to a debating question, but whether he's saying something really innovative and really profound about the new thing that God is doing. The old thing was about going up on the mountain and having two blocks of stone with commands on it. I mean, that's putting it very brutally, but that that it's not too far wrong he says the new thing is like the bridegroom coming for his bride and saying to her i take you to be my lawful wedded wife all that i have i give to you all that i am i am for you we watched what did we watch on thursday sense and sensibility with Hugh, which one is it? Grant. That one. And at the very end of it, just before the titles come up, he says to 
Eleanor, played by Emma Thompson, um, because she thought that he'd got married to somebody else, and he says something like, my heart is ever only yours. Titles. Love, wedding. Jesus is saying, that's what I've come to bring. That's the character of my kingdom. And, and if I may say, an awful lot comes from that insight. So Romans, a, a lot of the argumentation in Romans comes from union with Christ. You know, we are in Christ. What he has comes over to us. What he's done is ours. And it's a huge piece of theology. It's not just a, a random little thought and the next thought, please. It's a huge foundational piece of theology. And I really wonder whether that is really where we're at in these verses. Here's a new thing. Jesus came to claim his bride and to incorporate, to spread the arms of his, of his love and of his righteousness and of his bounty and blessing around her and that every Christian could then, from then on, say, I am in Christ. Don't think of me as being a bachelor or a spinster, spiritually speaking. Think of me as being his. I am in Christ. I stand in Christ. I am covered in Christ. I am enveloped in Christ. I am blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It's a very radical thought. So I would just offer that. And also off the back of this, it seems to me that our understanding of human marriage focuses in this sort of area. I don't think our understanding of human marriage is rooted in its richest form in the Old Testament. I think it is a Christian view in that it is when we see Christ and what he comes to do, when he brings about this union of two unlike beings the sinless saviour and his obnoxious woman which he so loves and washes and blesses that she becomes his spotless bride that it's that thought that event that blessing which informs our view of marriage and we might say, here's an insight that is a Christian insight. Why is it that weddings are so wonderful? Why is it that, there, that there's something almost transcendent about a, a, a wedding, by which I mean something which almost goes beyond this world into a world to come? I'm in heaven. I'm in heaven. Now, how does it go after that? I'm in heaven. That's language which is transcendent, isn't it? It's saying, beyond this world, I'm in heaven when I see you smile, or something like that. I've completely lost where I was going with this now. Uh, um, it, it, yeah, the, 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 the idea of, of, a, of a wedding, of 
that's why Christians are are so unaccommodatingly uncompromising about what marriage really is it is one man and one woman together forever uh, well in, in this life at least um, and that's why Christians won't be shifted to say whatever it is between same-sex people whatever you want to call it isn't marriage you know you call it something uh, for the sake of the law or whatever but the Christian insight says well, well it's not what what we've seen what Christ has revealed about the real meaning of male and female of this amazing act this amazing relationship that God has given to all humankind you know to, to all across different cultures anyway I've gone on a bit on that in John chapter 4 in the beginning of John's gospel we don't get this bit about how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them in about the same part of the gospel we get a chapter I don't know, it's a telepathy question. Anybody got in mind what chapter I'm thinking of? I've probably got it up on the screen now, haven't I? It's the prayer and fasting. It's not the prayer and fasting. John chapter 4 is what? The woman, the woman at the well. Now the woman at the well is a, what, what you would call a type scene. It, 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 it has a particular pattern to it in the Bible. And the pattern is that a bloke comes to the well there's a woman who has trouble getting water out of the well he helps her probably helps her camels and then and then what happens after that there's usually some sort of marriage isn't there he, quite often he would marry her so Moses goes Moses went to the well and he married the, the, the girl didn't he and it's interesting John chapter 4 it doesn't follow through the type well or does it because here is Jesus who comes to the well the woman is having problems uh, with with the water and uh, there's a, a conversation about it he doesn't marry her but what he does do is bring her to faith and she is you know she's got quite a dodgy past hasn't she and the Lord loves her and brings her to himself and I wonder whether what John is doing is following the same train of thought but he's just doing it in a different way here's one thing I want you to understand as we explain who Jesus is he's the bridegroom who comes to win his bride from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died it's just a thought Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to cleanse her to make her without spot or wrinkle or any such thing let's go on to the next section so Mark chapter 2 I've gone way off course on that but it does make you think so answer number one about the fasting is this whole wedding thing answer number two 
there is an explosive newness in the kingdom as we go from the old to the new it's not a completely comfortable transition or it may not be completely comfortable for many people and he gives these two illustrations of the clothing he says if you have old clothing and you sew on a patch interestingly I haven't checked this out but certainly in the NIV it's a gentleman who does the patching doesn't, isn't it? No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old. Anyway, I have to check whether that's borne out in the original, but it's interesting in the translation, isn't it? So he says, this is a recipe for disaster, really disaster. So I've put some trousers there with a patch and then the trousers explode which is a little bit over the top isn't it but he says that there's a, a pulling force if you put new fabric a new patch onto an old garment it pulls away it tears away you can't fit them together as incompatibility and he says likewise with the uh, wine skin uh, if it's empty and you top it up with new wine, new wine is still fermenting uh, in, and even when you put it into the wineskin it will be fermenting away and if the wineskin's got old and rigid, uh, it'll, well, you put the new wine in it, then it will explode, the wine will burst the skin, so I put a wineskin bursting there. Both quite strong uh, pictures, aren't they? It's not a comfortable thing. It's not an easy ride as you go from the old to the new. They don't just fit really um, without tension. And I think Jesus is saying something here, which again, I'm not sure that I've got my head around this completely. The new covenant fulfills the old covenant. Yes, it does. But that's not the only relationship. It's in a sense, in an explosive tension with the old covenant. We move from things that in the old covenant were right and normal and good, but if we try and bring them straight over into the new covenant, we find an explosive, destructive tension and it's a, it's, a, it's a subject worth thinking about quite carefully, but just for a moment, let's think about what the New Testament says about justification by faith alone. Listen to the tension in Galatians 6, verses 12 to 16. And I'm really just touching on this and leaving a lot of loose threads, I'm afraid. But Galatians, uh, that wasn't meant to be a pun, uh, Galatians 6, is, Galatians is in many ways about the Old Testament and the New Testament, and let's put it this way, there was a time when encouraging spiritually minded people, spiritually minded blokes to be circumcised was exactly the right thing to do. If you want to be a, a Jew, if you want to become a Jew from a Gentile background, then you need to undergo circumcision. That's the right thing to do. But there came a time after the 
newness of the gospel had come in, where if you say to somebody, you want to follow God, you want to draw close to God, you should be circumcised. If you say that to them, you are leading them up the garden path. You are destroying their spiritual life. You are putting such a burden on them and you are, you, you are leading them away from Christ. And it's interesting, isn't it? What was the right thing in such and such a year, however many years later, is very definitely the wrong thing. You can't fit the two together. It, it just... And uh, see how Paul is sort of exploding inside when he talks about it. Galatians 6 verse 12, those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. That's to say the real Israel, the Israel of God. And let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body, not the marks of circumcision, but the marks of Jesus. He says the cross really does explode a lot of what previously was commendable. And I think we'll stop at that point.